The following message is by Pastor Jason Pauley. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace, for this opportunity we have to be here to look at your word. God, I pray that you would guide us through it. God, I pray that we would be eager to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I pray for the many churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world today. I pray that that they, as they celebrate this Advent season, this Christmas season, that they would be truly uh, blessed by the sharing of your word. God, I pray that your gospel would be proclaimed and that lives would be changed. God, I pray for revival in this uh, country, in this state, in this country, in this world. And God, we pray that it would begin here with us now. Begin to turn our hearts toward you as we hear your word and seek to apply it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the third Sunday of Advent, and we are going to be looking at another of the so-called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. The servant songs have been named as such because they speak of a coming servant of the Lord. And remember from last week that God refers to various prophets as His servant. He refers to Cyrus, who was a pagan king, as His servant. And also the nation of Israel as a whole as His servant. In fact, if you work through the book of Isaiah, you see that there's this idea of the nation being a servant, but not a faithful servant. And really the idea of Isaiah is that there's a coming servant who will be faithful, and that servant is is Jesus Christ. And in each of these servant songs that we're looking at, God has this particular servant in mind. He has none other than the Lord Jesus Christ is whom He is speaking of. And this is appropriate for Advent because if we think about what Advent means, Advent simply means coming. And we look forward to the coming of Jesus. It's a time of reflection and preparation for Christmas Day when we celebrate the coming of Jesus A baby who was born in a manger, who was God Himself, who would ultimately die for our sins. We we celebrate that, and there should be a building up and anticipation of that. And we look to the servant songs because they look to Jesus coming before it happened. He hadn't come yet, and Isaiah shares these words of a coming servant. So there's a lot of anticipation and excitement in the hearer's words. So let's look at our text this morning. It's Isaiah 50, verses 40. Uh, verses 4 through 9, excuse me. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning, He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together who has a charge against me. Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. 
the moth will eat them. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So right now you're probably thinking, that was the fastest introduction and actually reading of the text we've ever gotten to. It's because there's a little bit more introduction to come. The actual servant song is contained in verses 4 through 9. But what I want to first do is look briefly at verses 1 through 3, because I think they give us some background information. And therefore, we get a little bit more insight into the text when we read these verses. First look at verse 1. So this is Isaiah 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which, you have, by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. As we look at this, text, as we look at verse 1, we see God asking two questions. He asks two questions. Number one, he says, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? So where's this certificate that shows that I took your mother and sent her away as a husband would send away his wife? And then number two, he says, to whom of my creditors did I sell you? And these questions might seem odd at first glance. It's important, though, to remember that the people have been taken into exile. The people had been removed from the land that God had given them. They'd been taken from their homes and all that they knew. Just imagine, we're here, we're in South Thomaston, and a foreign nation comes and takes us away from our homes, takes us to the home that God has given us, the place that God has given us. They've been forced from everything they knew. And as a result of this, the people felt as though they had been abandoned by God. In fact, in Isaiah 49, just one chapter back, Isaiah 49, 14, we read, Zion said, the nation said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. The nation said, God has forgotten us, He's forsaken us. And they were questioning why God would neglect His people. So God comes to them and He says, show me the certificate of divorce by which I made you fatherless. In other words, show me the evidence that I am the one who abandoned you. I'm not like a father who who has divorced his wife and left his children fatherless. That is not the situation here. And then he says, he goes on and he says, I didn't sell you to a creditor. He says, to whom of my creditors did I sell you? And the answer, the obvious answer, is no one. God didn't sell His people to a creditor. And we need to understand the culture in which this was written if we're going to understand this text. You see, if a man did not pay his debts, his children could be taken as slaves. We don't live in a world where that's the reality today, but uh, for some, they may want to rack up more debt. If their children could be taken away as slaves... No, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. The reality is that... they. Their children were taken away as slaves for debt that had been owed. That was the culture. And God says, do you think I sold you to my creditors? That you're taken away as slaves because I owe somebody a debt that I didn't pay? He's saying, I didn't sell you into slavery because I owed someone a debt. 
The obvious question is why then? Why were the people then in slavery? Why were they separated from God? And the answer is found at the end of verse 1. At the end of verse 1 we read, Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and your transgressions. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. In other words, all of this is the result of your sin. I didn't abandon you. You abandoned me. And we need to understand that background before we can look at verses two through or verses four through nine. But we also need to look at verses two through three. Verses two through three says this. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth for their covering. Again, God is still speaking here. God Himself is speaking and He's reminding the people that He's the one who has the power to deliver them. He says He can dry up the seas and the rivers with the power of His words. He says that He can darken the heavens. He can turn the day into night if He so chooses. Therefore, He's strong enough to rescue the people. You see, the problem is not that the Lord's arm is not long enough or that it's not strong enough to rescue them. The problem lies in the fact that they have not responded to His call to repentance. He says, when I came, no one was there. When I called, no one answered. You see, not only did the people bring this judgment on themselves because of their sin, they ignored the one who could save them. When the one who could save them came and said, where are you? They did not respond. When he called them to repentance, they ignored his voice. So verses 1 through 3 provide a a contrast. They contrast the nation of Israel, the disobedient servant, to the coming servant, the Messiah. The one who is described in verses 4-9. through You see, as we learned last week, the nation of Israel, they were called to be a light to the nations. They were called to represent God to, to the Gentile world. They were called to bring God's news of love and grace and mercy. And yes, that is the message of the Old Testament, by the way. God's message of grace and love and mercy. They were called to bring that to the people around them, to the nations around them. They were called to tell tell the people to live for God, for the true God and His glory. But instead of showing the world around them the true God, the superiority of their God, they started looking to the gods, the idols of the pagan nations. They started bowing down to the idols around them. And now, having been placed in exile, instead of looking for God to rescue them, they're continuing to look to their idols. They continue to bow down to their idols and say, rescue me! And God is saying, I came, I called, and you didn't answer. So it's with that background that we look at verses 4-9. through So now let's look at the actual servant song. The voice of the one speaking changes. When we look at verses 1-3, through it is God speaking. And God says, I called, you didn't answer. When I came, no one was there. And then in verses 4-9, through the voice changes. It's actually the servant himself who is speaking. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking. 
So as the servant speaks, we see his response. We see his response to God's call upon his life, and it stands in contrast to Israel's response. In these verses, we see the perfect example of obedience from Jesus. So the first point in your sermon outline is God's provision. Number one, God's provision. Look at verses 4-5 through again with me. The Lord God, this is again Jesus speaking, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. See, here we see that that God has equipped the servant for obedience. Notice that God not only calls for obedience in the life of the servant, but He also enables him to do it. Because the servant says, he says, the Lord God, that's literally, that's Adonai Yahweh. So he says, Adonai Yahweh, or, or Yahweh my Master. He says, Adonai Yahweh has given me both words to speak and ears to listen. He's given him a gift of ears to speak and words to listen. And contrast that with what we read earlier. Where God said, I called, and you didn't respond. I called, and nobody answered. He says he's given him ears to speak, or ears to hear and words to, to speak. First, he says, God has given him the tongue of disciples. Or as the King James Version says, the tongue of the learned. I love that. The tongue of the learned. The idea is of someone who is well-versed in God's Word. And therefore, he's equipped and ready to share it in an appropriate and timely manner. When I was in Bible college, I had a particular professor who really lived this out well. He seemed to always be able to do this. Any question you could ask, you'd say, well, what about such and such? And he'd say, oh, well, turn to such and such a passage. You could ask him anything, and he'd say, turn to Romans 2, verse 18 through 20. And we'd turn there, and then he'd point us to the answer. It was amazing. I was amazed at the depth of his knowledge of the Scriptures. And I began to realize this was a real gift that God had given him. God had given him an amazing gift. But I also began to realize as time went by that it was also the result of years of study. You see, he had the tongue of a disciple, the tongue of one who was learned, because he was a disciple. He spent time learning. He had learned to sit at the feet of his Lord, his Master, Jesus Christ. Figuratively, of course. right? He didn't didn't literally sit at the feet of uh, Jesus while he was alive. I went to Bible college a while ago, but it wasn't that long ago. He wasn't that old. He learned to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from Jesus. And in the same way, the servant here in Isaiah knows how to sustain the weary one with a word. Because God has given him the tongue of a disciple. He learned to sit at the feet of his father and learn from his father. You see, if one wants the tongue of a disciple, he must listen and learn as a disciple. He has to be ready to hear from God if he is going to be able to speak God's truth. My father used to say uh, to my sister all the time, you can't listen with your mouth open. And, And I think the point was that you need to listen before you respond. We'd say, engage the brain before you engage the mouth, right? We need to listen from the Lord. We need to hear what the Lord is saying and listen to Him. And the servant was eager to listen to the Father. 
And by the way, I, I really mean more than just hear from the Father. He listened. He was actively engaging himself in hearing with the intent of being obedient. So he says in verse 4 that the Lord has awakened his ear to listen as a disciple. And the learning, that learning enabled him to speak God's truth. He says that he listens morning by morning. In other words, he is one who is frequently and consistently seeking God's counsel. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that you should do your devotions in the morning but I'm going to stand up here and tell you you really should do your devotions in the morning. Right? I've been, I'm not a morning person. I've never been a morning person, but I'm a Christian, so I'm learning to be a morning person. And I really believe there's a benefit to that, to rising up early and putting that first. Uh, early in my walk, I try to do devotions at night, and night comes, and uh, there's stuff going on, and the day just gets ahead of you, and... It's just something special. And maybe not everybody, maybe not everybody's wired that way, but I've found time and time again that there's something special about getting up early and doing that first. And Scripture says, the servant says, morning by morning. And the point is not that we have to be legalistic about morning, but the point is that he's frequently, consistently making it a priority. He's seeking God's counsel. So when we get to the New Testament, we see this actually clearly demonstrated in the life of Jesus. Look at Mark 1, 29-38 with me. If you want to turn there, that's great. Mark 1, 29-38. says this, And immediately, after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. And immediately, if you read through uh, the Gospel of Mark, by the way, you'll see this term immediately a lot. Mark uses this term. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately Jesus did this. And it speaks to the, to the uh, urgency of Jesus' ministry. It speaks to the, the brevity of Jesus' ministry. It speaks to the focus of Jesus' ministry. Immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And she waited on them. So he comes out of the synagogue. Uh, This woman's sick. They tell him about it. He heals her. And she starts waiting on them. And then it says, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and all those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So we see this picture. It's it's already after sun had set. The verse says, When evening came, after sun had set, they began bringing people to him. And they brought many. And he healed many. And it says, The whole city gathered at the door. So this started after the sun had set. And imagine the people that had come. It's a great many people. So it's late, late at night. And what does the next verse say? In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. So Jesus, early in the morning, He's had a late night of ministry. If there's any opportunity to sleep in, it's this morning. Early in the morning, while it's still dark, He gets up goes to a secluded place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions, they searched for him. They found him and they said to him, 
uh, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Like, you got this great ministry thing going on. The whole town is coming to you, Jesus, right? And he said to them, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. You see, you see this picture of Jesus, he gets away because he wants to do the Father's will. And in all human wisdom, what's the smart thing to do? Sleep in, get some rest, let the rest of the town come, stay put and heal everybody else, minister to everybody else. They're receptive. But Jesus is not about human wisdom. He's not about doing His will. He's about doing the Father's will. So He gets up early in the morning. He seeks the Father. He prays to the Father. He wants to know, Lord, what would You have me do? And the Lord says, I'm going to move on. We, we need to go to these other places because that's what I came for. The Father has told me that's what I came for. He listened to His Father. And again, I don't want to overemphasize early in the morning, but the point is, He gets up and He does it consistently. He makes it a priority. So getting back to our text, not only does the Lord's servant Jesus say that God gave him a tongue to speak God's truth, but we learn that it comes through ears that are open to listening to God's truth. Let's look at the second point in our sermon outline. The first point is God's provision. God's provision that even though the people would not listen, even though the people would not respond, that God in His grace sends a servant with ears to hear and a tongue to speak, one who would respond. And then the second point is, number two, the people's rejection. So we've seen God's provision. Now we look to the people's rejection. At the end of verse 5, the servant says, I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Having been given ears to hear God's Word and a tongue to speak it, that is precisely what Jesus did. He was perfectly obedient to God's call. And His obedience stands in contrast again to the people's rejection of Him. Look at verses 6-7 through with me. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus knows that God is helping him. He knows that he will not be ashamed. Therefore, he says, I have set my face like flint. Think of the sober, stone-faced athlete, right? Whose singular focus is the task at hand. And you see a, a picture of two boxers facing each other. They're not grinning and joking, right? They're stone-faced. When you see football players come out onto the field, they are stone-faced and ready to tackle the task at hand. Jesus willingly endured all the suffering He received because He was determined. He set His face like flint to do the Father's will. In fact, if you read Luke 9.51, you you see that same term used where Jesus said, it says, and Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew what lied ahead of him. And he knew that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. See, in the Gospels, we have a picture. We get a picture of the abuse that Jesus received. Mark 16, 45 says, Some began to spit at him, to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and say to him, Prophesy! And the officers, they received him with slaps in the face. 
the king of all creation, despised and rejected by the ones that he came to save. If you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you can kind of, these images come up as, even as you read this text. It's likely those images of a battered and bruised Jesus are kind of seared into your mind. However, even that graphic portrayal falls so very short of accurately depicting what it meant for the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer and die on a cross, to physically subject himself to death on the cross, let alone the emotional and spiritual pain associated with taking on the sins of the entire world. And it's in the midst of that abuse, that abuse that Jesus, God's servant, says, the Lord helps me. In other words, I'll draw my strength from him. So I've set my face like flint I'm determined to do my Father's will. I am determined to do it. And I know, I know that I will not be put to shame. So having seen God's provision, that God's going to send a servant who will have ears to hear and a tongue to speak in spite of the people who did not respond, and seeing the, the people's rejection, that God was going to send a servant who was obedient, determined to do God's will, even though the people were not even though they rejected not only God, but also His coming servant. Now let's look at the third point in our sermon outline. The third point is God's verdict. God's verdict, verses 8 through 9 of Isaiah 50. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Remember in the early part of this chapter, God asked, When I called, where were the people? Why were they silent? And now the servant is telling them, telling those who have rejected him. The Lord Jesus says, To those of you who have rejected me, stand up. Make yourselves known. Speak. He says, don't be silent. Bring your case against me. Declare your case. Again, the contrast is clear between the servant and the people. The people were indeed guilty. They had sinned against God. The chapter starts with, you were sold for your iniquities. For your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Isaiah 48, 18-19 says, If only you had paid attention to my commandments then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grass. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. But they did not pay attention to, the God's, to God's commandments. You see, the idea here is that if they had obeyed, they would not be cut off. They wouldn't be sent into exile. But they did not obey God's commands and therefore they stood condemned. And on the contrast, on the other hand, we have God's servant, Jesus, who had paid attention to God's commands. He had done nothing wrong. He was righteous and without sin. Therefore, he would not be condemned. See, God would defend his righteousness. And that's what the servant says. I know. I know that I will be vindicated. In fact, in the New Testament, we learn that his righteousness, the servant's righteousness, is credited to all who place their trust in him. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, the people could bring all the charges they wanted to against the servant. The fact remained that God would vindicate him because he was righteous. But for all those who are seeking to disgrace the servant, he says, behold, all of them, they'll wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. See, one day their lives will come to an end and they'll have to answer. They'll have to answer to the one who endures forever. Same idea is reiterated just a chapter ahead in Isaiah 51. Verses 6 through 8, we read, Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. Same words. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteous one, my righteousness will not wane. Listen to me. You who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness, the righteousness that I give, will be forever. And my salvation that I will give through this coming servant will be to all generations. See, one day, like a moth eaten garment, those who reject Jesus will see their lives come to an end. And when this occurs, the one whom they accuse, they place on trial, will stand over them as their judge. He will stand over them as their judge. So in review, we see God's provision. Number one, God's provision. The people, though the people did not listen, and they didn't respond to God's call, He was going to send them a servant who would have ears to listen and a tongue to speak God's truth. And number two, the people's rejection. Though the people were disobedient, God was sending one who would be perfectly obedient to His commands. Though despised and rejected, He was determined to do His Father's will. And then number three, God's verdict. Though the people were guilty in God's court of law, He was going to send one who was not guilty. One who is righteous, and his righteousness would be applied to all who placed their trust in him and him alone. So the question is how do we apply all of this? We'll look at verses 10 through 11. While the servant song is actually verses 4 through 9 and ends at verse 9, the application is actually given in verses 10 through 11. It says this. So let's look at first option number one. Option number one is seen in verse 10. God gives us two options for how we might respond. Verse 10. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of His servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. See, the first option is realize that without Him, we are walking in darkness. Therefore, we must rely on God. By obeying His voice, trusting in His light, trusting in His servant, and trusting Him to guide us through life. Or, option two is given in verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire. So verse 10, we see walking by the light of the servant. And then verse 11, behold, all you who kindle a fire. 
who encircle yourselves with firebrands, who walk in the light of your fire. And among the firebrands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. So option two says, for those of you who choose this option, you, you walk by the light of your own fire. You walk by the light of your own fire, not the light of the Lord. It's people who do things their way. And he says at the end of their days, they lie down in torment. These are scary words from the God of the universe. And they should shake us. They should cause us to say, whose light are we walking by? Are we walking by the light of the Lord? Are we trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in the servant that was sent, knowing that we are not righteous in and of ourselves, but He is? And I pray, I pray that you would place your trust in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't know who here knows Christ as their Savior, but I pray that you would realize that every person has sinned. That we all stand before God condemned because we have sinned against Him. But He sent Jesus, born in a manger, born as a baby, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, to be raised up from death so that we can choose Him, we can follow Him, and that His death will be applied to us. His payment will be applied to our account. And that we can spend eternity with Him in heaven. And I pray that that is the case. And if you need to know more about that, if you want to know more about that, I encourage you to come see me or Bill. Just talk to us about what that means to live for Jesus Christ and to commit your life to Christ, to follow the example of His servant, or to follow uh, Jesus Christ with your life. And then if you have committed your lives to Christ, that's what we're called to do. We are called to continually commit our lives to Christ. We are called to follow the example of His servant. So how do we do this? Hopefully we are known here at Harmony Bible Church as a body of believers. People who have indeed done that. People who have indeed trusted, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. So once we've done that, how do we as a group, as a community, follow His example of servanthood? Well, number one, and this is where the rubber really hits the road, we must be serious about listening to God. If we're going to follow Christ's example and be not the disobedient servant that Israel was, but the obedient servant that Jesus was, we must be serious about listening to God. So therefore, I pray that morning by morning, we're allowing ourselves to receive the provision of God's Word. God has provided His Word, and I pray that morning by morning, that's what you're doing. I pray that He's opening your ears to apply, to hear and apply what He has to say. I pray that we become serious students of the Word. Not a Sunday morning thing. If you ate only on Sunday morning, you probably wouldn't be healthy. And I know this cliche is overused, but if you, if you only intake God's Word on Sunday morning, probably not going to be spiritually healthy. We're called to morning by morning be serious students of God's Word. Number two, if we're going to follow the example of the servant, Jesus Christ, we must be serious about sharing God's Word. We have to be serious about sharing God's Word. I pray that as, as you become students of the Word, that, that we would grow in our ability to share God's Word with each other, to teach each other. I pray that we would be serious about having speech that is good for building up, that fits the occasion, that, that gives grace to those who hear, 
that as you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ, that as you meet in each other's homes, you break bread and share meals with each other, that as you uh, attend uh, Bible study on Tuesday night, that as you attend Sunday school and as you talk with each other throughout the week, that you would be serious about sharing God's Word, building each other up, that you would have the tongue of a disciple. But I also pray that we would know how to share God's Word with those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. And here's an area where I think the church, the church, maybe Harmony Bible Church, I would, probably, I would say maybe not, but I would venture to guess that we are weak. That we are weak about sharing God's truth with the world around us. That if we believe the Scriptures, that if we believe that everyone is, is a sinner, that all men have sinned, and that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is, is, is forgiveness through Jesus Christ, then why would we not share that? I pray that we would be eager to share God's Word with those who are not followers of Jesus. We would be serious about sharing the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with the world around us. And that's not going to happen through programs. I can teach an evangelism class. We can have an outreach program and trunk or treat. And those things are great and awesome. And we should do those things. But they will never, never change our hearts. And what needs to change first is our heart. And if we have a heart that wants to share the gospel, then we'll share the gospel. Whether there's a trunk or treat or not a trunk or treat, whether we are at work on Monday morning or leaning over the fence talking to our neighbor on Sunday afternoon, I pray that God gives, not you, us, that includes me, a heart to share the gospel with the lost. And number three, so we've seen how we must be serious about listening to God. Number two, we must be serious about sharing God's Word. Number three, we must trust in Christ's righteousness and not our own. We have to trust in Christ's righteousness. See, I pray that we never lose sight of the Gospel of Christ. While the word gospel-centered might indeed be overused and underpracticed, I pray that everything we do is indeed centered on the Gospel. That it's really all about the Gospel. That we never get to a place where I stand up here and, and we hear it once again, oh, the gospel again? Can't you give us some deep teaching? Can't you give us some teaching about, well, should we drink alcohol? Or should I wear red skirts on Sunday? Or should, are women allowed to wear pants? Whatever, the, whatever you want to know for deep teaching, right? I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to preach the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Keep the main thing the main thing. And I pray that we never lose sight of that. I pray that as we rejoice in the fact that God has sent His Son, born of a virgin, perfect in righteousness, willing to shed His blood, I pray that we rejoice over that. That as we rejoice in His first advent, we also pray and rejoice over His second advent, His second coming. Knowing that not only did He die on the cross, but He's coming back. That He defeated death. He's alive today. He's returning to rule and reign in righteousness. And that we look toward that day. So I pray that as we seek to apply this message from Isaiah, we'd be serious about listening to God. We'd be serious about sharing God's Word. And that we'd trust in Christ's righteousness and not our own. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. God, I just pray that You'd be with us. God, we need an immeasurable amount of grace. 
I praise you that you have promised that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God, work in us now. Stir our hearts. God, help us to grow and change. God, there's not a person in this room that doesn't need to change. Start with me, Lord. Change our minds. Change our hearts. Direct them toward you. Help us to be serious. Serious disciples. Give us the ears of disciples. Give us the tongue of disciples. Help us to trust in your Son's righteousness and His righteousness alone. And God, as we reflect on the Gospel, may that be the grace needed, the grace provided to help us become doers of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.